Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 3 of Superman and Batman. My name is Michael Bradley, and I am your host, and this is a show where each and every episode, we look at a Superman and Batman team-up story from the comic books. Uh, Team-ups between the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight have been commonplace in a variety of mediums since the characters were first paired in the late 1940s on episodes of Superman's radio show. They had their very first real team-up in print in the early 1950s and began teaming up in each and every issue of World's Finest Comics soon after. Even though that title was cancelled in 1985, pairings of that team have continued in various issues of each other's comics as well as miniseries and specials and annuals throughout the years. And this is a show where we celebrate more than 60 years of the world's finest team. Nearly each episode, I pull a random issue of World's Finest Comics and look at the Superman-Batman story within its pages. Occasionally, I might look at a story not in that series or one from a more recent comic, but whether we're within the pages of World's Finest Comics or not, there will be plenty of Superman and Batman epicness to keep us entertained. And I'm not sure if epicness is really a word, but Shakespeare made up words, so it's good enough for me. In the first episode, we looked at the very first team-up from 1952, just before the dawn of the Silver Age. Last episode, we had a late Bronze Age story with War in the Streets from World's Finest Comics number 281. But this time, guided by the forces of randomness, we are swinging back to the opposite end of the spectrum once more and looking at a very early Silver Age story. If variety is the spice of life, This show has got it in spades. And our story this time, folks, well, it's a doozy. If you like bizarre Silver Age stories, then this one is definitely for you. It comes from World's Finest Comics number 105 and is a 13-page story titled The Alien Superman. Costing a whole dime, the issue was released around September 3rd, 1959, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com. It had a November 1959 cover date and was edited by Jack Schiff. Credits are not listed in the book, as was unfortunately commonplace at the time. However, the story was written by Bill Finger and penciled by Dick Sprang. Two men who are in no way unfamiliar with Batman, or Superman for that matter. Bill Finger is primarily known for being the uncredited co-creator of Batman, but he wrote a lot of Superman stories from the late 1940s to the mid-60s. Sprang penciled only a handful of Superman stories, but he was the primary artist on World's Finest Comics team-ups, from mid-1945 until he retired in the early 60s. He penciled the Superman and Batman stories in all but one issue between number 78 and 115, which is a pretty impressive run in that era, uh, even more so when you consider he was also turning out two or three Batman stories each and every month, as well as covers here and there. Credits differ for who inked Sprang's pencils on this story, uh, both the Showcase reprint and Mike's Amazing World credit Charles Paris, while the Grand Comics database credits Sheldon Moldoff. I'm not real great about judging who did uh, what piece of art, so 
we're just going to have to leave that to the experts and say Charles Paris or Sheldon Muldoff. Uh, our cover, though, is by Kurt Swan and Stan Kay and shows what looks to be a green-skinned alien wearing a Superman costume and shooting a blast of energy from his fingertips at a fleeing Batman and Robin. But the two people, but there are two people standing nearby, and a speech balloon from one of them lets us know that this isn't a green-skinned alien at all, but the real Superman transformed. So what exactly is going on here? Well, let's find out. Though Superman comes from a faraway planet which was destroyed years ago, his appearance resembles that of Earthmen in every respect. But now, a startling new change comes over the Man of Steel, and nobody, not even Batman and Robin, knows how to cope with the alien Superman. We begin in the offices of the Daily Planet. Clark Kent gets a tip from Perry White that Batman and Robin are on the trail of an armored vehicle that has just performed a heist at Gotham Bank. Within minutes, Superman arrives on the scene where he finds the dynamic duo strapping on magnetic footplates so they can jump onto the weird bullet-shaped vehicle and apprehend the thieves. Superman volunteers to take care of it himself, but is drawn away by a larger threat of a meteor streaking through the sky and headed directly toward Gotham City. But, as Batman and Robin jump onto the speeding vehicle, the criminals inside steer toward a nearby tree, aiming to do away with the dynamic duo once and for all. Hoping to kill two birds with one stone, no pun intended, Superman grabs the meteor, throwing it directly into the path of the criminals, knocking the tree out of the way, crashing their vehicle, and, luckily for us, not killing Batman and Robin in the process. With, apparently, none of the heroes worrying about the criminals, Batman and Robin take the meteor back to the Batcave for study, while Superman, as Clark Kent, returns to the Daily Planet to write up the story. A few days later, the world's finest heroes meet again in Gotham to be honored by the Bankers Association for... Well, it says for capturing the crime mobile, but honestly, they didn't capture it so much as destroy it and quite a bit of property. So, plus there's no indication that they actually took the thieves to jail. Maybe it's supposed to be a given. It's just odd that they at least didn't mention it since if Silver Age comics have one fault, it's the tendency to over-explain everything. But anyway, after the ceremony... Batman and Robin see Superman acting dazed, as if he's been affected by kryptonite. But suddenly, the Man of Steel begins to spin, twirling himself into a cocoon like a giant caterpillar. The dynamic duo is worried about the situation, and probably a little confused, but afraid to break open the cocoon, fearing it could be dangerous. News of Superman's situation quickly spreads across the country, and a crowd soon gathers. And I want to stop here for just a quick minute and, and do a sidestep. I don't want to bog the show down with a lot of history, but I found this interesting, and it, it helps to provide a, a little context of the times. When the narration talks about news spreading across the country, they show a man learning of Superman's situation via a television news report. And I was curious just how widespread TVs were in 1959. So I did a little research... And by research, I mean I googled it. And what I found was when this issue was released, it was sort of the beginning of, te of television being a major fixture in people's lives. 
Um, the stats I found estimate that in 1959, 85 to 90% of American households had a television, compared to fewer than 50% just a couple years prior. 1959 also was the year that several significant TV shows began, including Bonanza, The Untouchables, and The Twilight Zone. So it's not unbelievable or, or unrealistic that even in 1959, word about something like this could spread to a great number of people in a relatively short amount of time. But I think, and, and really it, it, it wasn't unbelievable a few years prior too, but I think had this story been done five years earlier, that panel probably would have shown a radio instead. And, and delivering the news that way just wouldn't have had the visual impact of people seeing this, you know, Superman inside a cocoon on, on television. Uh, but getting back into the story, we've got a mass of people gathered around and Batman and Robin wondering what to do. Suddenly, a man breaks through the crowd and shows Batman a piece of paper he claims he found digging for Indian relics near Smallville, where baby Superman's ship arrived all those years ago. He claims the paper was written by Superman's father, Jor-El, and tells of how some unknown force could cause strange bodily changes in Kryptonians. According to the paper, these include amnesia and different powers, as well as physical changes, and then the paper shows a sketch of a big-eyed, wide-mouthed creature with a pointed skull and two antennae protruding from its forehead. Worried, Batman has Robin retrieve a kryptonite cage as a precaution, and the two resume their vigil. Soon, the cocoon cracks open, and a figure emerges, one that resembles the drawing, but clad in Superman's costume. Batman tries to talk to his old friend, but the creature fires bolts of lightning from his fingertips, stopping Batman cold. Robin releases the cage, but the creature uses a repelling force from his antenna to stop it, and makes his escape. Undeterred, the dynamic duo follows, soon cornering the creature in an alley and binding him with a bat bolo. Batman then speaks with him and, I kid you not, according to the narration, quote, the fearful alien responds to Batman's soothing voice, unquote, and agrees to go to the Daily Planet where Batman and Robin hope to restore his memory. But, unbeknownst to the dynamic duo, inside a nearby cave is the real Superman, held prisoner and left powerless by a basketball-sized chunk of kryptonite. Filling in the reader, Superman recollects the men who lured him to the cave with phony cries for help had sent someone to impersonate him using hidden machinery in the walls to create the cocoon, all in hopes of tricking Batman into taking him to the Batcave for some nefarious purpose. Exposition done, we cut back to Metropolis, where Batman is regaling the creature with photos of many of the world's finest exploits, none of which were actually seen in comics to this point, but I think that's okay. I, I like the idea that these heroes have adventures we never see in printed form, and I think it actually makes continuity easier, because you can reference things that happened without the impossible task of, of laying the groundwork years in advance. Plus, it's just fun referencing these outlandish gems of ideas that you can't necessarily build entire stories around. Like, hey, what if Superman turned into a green-skinned alien? Oh, wait. They, they actually did make a story out of that one. 
Mm. Well, back into it. Batman's tales seem to jog the creature's memory. He says he now remembers the past perfectly and has a very important favor to ask of the Dark Knight. But before the creature can finish, Batman hears of an armed robber at at an amusement park and heads out to go be awesome again. The creature asks Perry White for a piece of paper so that he can write down his request in case he loses his memory again, which he conveniently does. When Batman returns, he reads the creature's note, which says he believes the meteor from earlier in the story caused him to change, and Batman needs to take him to the Batcave so that he can destroy it and change back. Batman head out and catch up with the alien and take him to a different cave. When Robin asks why, Batman says he wanted to catch the creature alone and off guard because he knows that the creature isn't Superman. Once inside the cave, Batman lashes out like a tiger, socking the creature in the jaw. But a surprise awaits the Dark Knight when the punch hurts Batman's fists and the creature pulls off a mask to reveal he is Superman. Confused yet? Well, lucky for you, a trip down Exposition Highway just arrived. First up is Batman, who explains he knew the creature wasn't actually Superman when he asked for the paper after claiming that he remembered everything perfectly. That relatively minor detail out of the way, it's time for Superman to do some explaining. The Man of Steel tells how, while he was rendered powerless by the kryptonite, he used his super hearing to find a stream beneath the cave. He then used his X-ray vision to bore a hole down to the stream where he could dump the kryptonite and let the water carry it safely away. Which, when you think about it, is a pretty stupendous use of powers for a powerless Superman. He then continues that he tracked down the imposter, who explained he was just an actor in a suit with fancy gadgets to emulate powers, and all about how the real criminals want to get to the Batcave and destroy the manor, or destroy the, (laughs) destroy the manor, destroy the meteor, which we the readers already knew. Why Superman decided to dress up like the creature isn't really discussed. Maybe he's just into cosplay. I don't know. Regardless, with the world's finest on the same page about what the criminals hope to accomplish, but not why, they decide to give them exactly what they want and dispose of the meteor. We then cut to the secret hideout of Midge Martin, notorious gang chief, who is in the company of the green-skinned creature. The, The real one this time. And it's time for one more ride down Exposition Highway. The alien, whose name is Kalex, explains that after escaping prison on his home planet, he spied on Earth and realized only Superman stood in his way of conquest. He planned on using kryptonite to take care of him, but after he landed, he was faced with another problem. The meteor. You see, the meteor is actually Galgalex, which has the same effect on him that kryptonite does on Superman only a thousand times more so. So, instead of having no powers, he would have a thousand times no powers. And it's probably best to file that under things we're not going to think about too hard. 
So when Kalex read the meteor had been taken to the Batcave, he devised this huge, convoluted scheme that has made up our story, including working with Martin and his thugs, to get to the meteor and make sure it's destroyed. As it happens, at just that moment, Kalex's powers return. Believing his plan successful, Kalex flies off to begin his quest for planetary domination by... robbing a bank. Because hey, even mega-powerful aliens have to start somewhere. Unfortunately, Kalex's plans are short-lived when he's interrupted by... Superman. Kalex attacks the Man of Steel with flaming vision, but it has no effect on our hero, who uses a steel girder to bind the alien. Kalex easily breaks free of the girder, however, and demands the world's finest hero leave him alone, or he'll use his vibrating vision to shake the city apart. But shortly after making the threat, Kalex slumps backwards and leans against the wall, powerless. Superman then reveals that he didn't destroy the meteor. Instead, and again, I'm going to quote right from the book here, I got rid of that Golgolex by tossing it far into space so that I'd discover who wanted to destroy it and why. And here's the best part. But I threw it up at such an angle that it would fall back to Earth again. I'm getting it now. So Superman threw the Golgolex, which he somehow inexplicably knew the name of, into space. Okay, fair enough. I, I can get behind that. But he threw it at just the right angle so as to have it come back down to Earth at precisely the right time, even though he had no way of knowing when or if that would ever happen. This is insane. But with Kalex powerless, he's rounded up by Batman and Robin. Superman then takes him and the meteor back to Kalex's home planet and soon returns to the Batcave with a new trophy for the dynamic duo, a photo of the police chief of Kalex's home planet, which is never actually named, but that's okay because it has nothing to do with the story. <sighs> I'll be honest, folks. This one was a slog. When you podcast, almost any comics era or character you cover, you're going to run into stories that are difficult to synopsize. I mean, sometimes they're just written that way. But this one wasn't difficult to synopsize because of the way it was written. It was just a really bad story. When I read it, I enjoyed it. I mean, I recognized the plot holes and the absurd logic, but I still enjoyed it for what it was. When I read Silver Age comics, I don't expect Shakespeare. And I can enjoy a crazy Silver Age story on those merits, but to then sit down and have to study the minute details of it and, and do a synopsis and, and try to make that entertaining, wow, that, that was just really a chore here. But still, it's a little unfair to judge a story like this one on the minutia, because they weren't written to be torn apart. They, they were written for kids, young, young kids. And it was a fun story, and, and like I said, I enjoyed it on a light reading. There are huge plot holes, blatant contradictions about Superman's powers, a nauseating amount of exposition, and nonsense twists like Superman impersonating the alien who was impersonating him for no real reason. But it's fun and silly, and I certainly wouldn't put it anywhere near a list of best Silver Age stories. But I've read worse. A lot worse. 
and I have a feeling we'll have worse on the show at some point because that's kind of how these things go. Um, to its credit, it had a nice puzzle set up. We got to see Batman doing a little bit of the of detective work and, and facing a, a, a very real problem that something might have happened to Superman and not knowing what was going to come out of that cocoon. It feels a little like they had a great idea for a story, but didn't quite know where to go with it after that. Or, or maybe they just didn't have time to completely think out all the logistics of it. I don't know. But this might have been left... This might have been better left as one of those apocryphal tales, like I mentioned earlier. Ones that you hear about and are referenced, but are never actually told in greater detail. Uh, speaking of, though, I, I really did enjoy the scene with Batman and the creature at the Daily Planet. Batman shows him several adventures that he and Superman had had. Uh, one where they captured some crooks at a place called Giant Land. Uh, Superman saving Batman from the Joker, and Batman helping Superman take down Luthor. Those were just all fun to see, even if they weren't, uh, or even if they were just references. It was also nice to see Perry White. He had a brief scene with Clark at the beginning, and a little interaction with Batman in the middle. And I think this might be, historically, the first, or, or at least one of the earliest, scenes with Perry White and Batman. You don't get a lot of scenes with both those characters for obvious reasons. Though it would be interesting, and I don't think this has ever happened, but I think it would be interesting to get Perry's reaction to Batman throughout the various years and eras. Um, obviously, I think in this continuity, he would be pretty accepting of him right off the bat. No pun intended because pretty much everyone was. But post-Crisis or in the New 52, it, it could make for an interesting uh, character moment. But getting back here and staying kind of on the same topic of characters, I thought Robin was really well used in this story. He was there. He had his own mission to go get the cage and, and spring that at the correct time and a role to play in the rest of the, of the story. But mostly it was about Batman, not Batman and Robin, which I appreciated. I don't hate the character of Robin, but when I read a Superman and Batman story, I want it to be about Superman and Batman, not Superman, Batman, and Robin. It's been some years since I've read most of these early World's Finest Comics stories, and I remembered Robin being a much bigger part of them. Um, maybe this story is is an odd duck, and, and others from around this time do have more Robin. Uh, we'll have to see when and if those come up in the show. But as for this story alone, I thought Robin was really well used. So the story did have its good points, even if covering it for the show was kind of a drag. If nothing else, if nothing else, one thing the story certainly had going for it is the art. The art here, for the most part, is, is absolutely beautiful. Superman is not really consistent throughout. His face kind of changes from scene to scene, but Sprang's square-jawed, barrel-chested Batman is in top form. His characters are very expressive without becoming caricatures of his own style, and it's just very dynamic art. Um, even in static panels that just show two characters talking, the way Sprang frames them or, or illustrates that particular panel gives them life and makes the whole story 
burst with energy rather than just the action scenes. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of split on this story. It, it was tough to synopsize, but it had a lot of good points. And like I said, when I sat down to read it for the show, I enjoyed the read, despite the gaping plot holes and, and absurdities. So there's that. Uh, right now, we're going to take a break. I'm going to get a drink, wet my whistle a little bit, and then we'll be, we'll be back for the second segment of the show. I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice, a guardian devil. (coughs) No, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's, it's my Daredevil, you get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to From Crisis to Crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them anyway. Yeah, 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 some of those really did suck, don't they? But From Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. Dot com. Is it dot .com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot .com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Wet my whistle? Is that still a phrase people use in everyday conversation? If you've listened to my other podcasts, you know I'm tragically unhip, so... Yeah. Um, despite being really silly and, and having absurd logic, the Alien Superman has received a trio of reprints through the years. 
first in World's Finest Comics, number 161, from 1966, then in World's Finest Archives, volume 3, and a black and white reprint in Showcase Presents World's Finest, volume 1, which is where I read the story for the episode here. Also, if you want to hear another podcaster's take on the story, check out episode 287, part 1, of the Superman Fan Podcast where Billy Hogan covered it amid his regular coverage of the Silver Age Superman stories. I haven't heard Billy's take as of when I'm recording this, but Billy puts out a great show, and I highly encourage you to listen. The Alien Superman is the lead story in World's Finest Comics number 105, and that's followed by a two-page Western story titled It Happened in Illinois, and it was written and drawn, or, or that that two-page story was written and drawn by the great Joe Hubert, and actually a reprint from a 1951 issue of Jimmy Wakely. And next is a six-page Tommy Tomorrow story by Otto Bender and Jim Mooney titled The Reckless Rookie. And finally, there's a six-page Green Arrow story by Ed Heron and Lee Elias titled The Mighty Mr. Miniature. I didn't read any of the backups, but the Green Arrow story was covered on episode 15 of the Emerald Archer, which is a Green Arrow podcast hosted by uh, father and son duo Ed and Nick Moore. So you can check that out if you're interested in hearing more about Green Arrow. Uh, The book also has a text piece, but no one cares about that. And, well, there's no commercial ads worth mentioning, though there is a really neat PSA. DC ran a lot of these throughout the years. They're drawn like a comic book with panels and speech balloons and such. There's a whole series in the 40s and 50s with Superboy and Superman and and other characters. This one doesn't have any named characters, but it's a mini-history of the evolution of the U.S. flag and how stars have been added as states were added to the Union. The final panel references that the 49th star, representing Alaska, had just been added, and that a 50th would be added to represent Hawaii the next year. The strip reads like Hawaii hadn't yet joined the Union, but according to Wikipedia, Hawaii joined about a month before this comic was published, so the ad might have run in months prior to when this book was published. I I didn't take time to look through other issues. Either way, it's a really neat PSA. I will be sure to post this on the site at greatcrypton.com, along with the, the show notes for this episode. It's not Superman or Batman, but I think some of you would, would enjoy seeing this. Uh, the Grand Comics Database credits the script for the PSA to Jack Schiff and the art to Bernard Bailey, who, among other things, co-created The Spectre with Jerry Siegel and The Hour Man with Ken Fitch. At this time, Bailey was mostly doing stories and covers for DC's anthologies, like House of Mystery and uh, House of Secrets. He wasn't working on any of the, uh, the superhero line. But speaking of DC's other product, let's head on over to Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com. Fire up the time machine and see what else was interesting on the stands at this time. Uh, Superman 133, maybe one of the most important issues of the Silver Age, at least as far as Superman is concerned. Not because it's a key issue or the first appearance of an important character, but because it marks the return of Jerry Siegel to his most famous creation, or or co-creation, I really should say. Siegel has two stories in this book, How Perry White Hired Clark Kent, and Superman Joins the Army. 
neither qualify as Siegel's best work, but with that, Superman's Silver Age is fully underway. Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 13, features the first appearance ever of Lois Lane's parents. And if you are only familiar with the Sam and Ella Lane of post-1986 stories, you should really give this a read and be introduced to a a much different version of the Lanes. I I was pretty much flabbergasted the first time I read it. Uh, Showcase 23 is the second appearance of the Silver Age Green Lantern, Hal Jordan. Action Comics 258. This is Supergirl's ninth appearance, and in her story in this book, she learns the biggest secret of all time, that Superman is Clark Kent. And much like when Batman learned the secret in the story we covered in the first episode, it's not undone by the, by the story's end. So definitely a watershed moment for the character. With Detective Comics number 273, I don't know anything about this other than it's got a bizarre cover of Batman surrounded by several robed figures in dragon masks. But I want to mention it because it's the only Batman comic this month. At this time, Batman's self-titled book was one of the series on an eight-times-a-year publishing schedule, so no issue this month. Uh, Superman and World's Finest were on that same type of publishing schedule, but they were just staggered to have different months off. And the last thing I see is Strange Adventures number 110, which I mention only because it has a really great cover of a giant hand reaching over a hillside to grab a car. It was penciled by Gil Kane and finished by Jack Adler using some kind of wash technique. I'm not really sure of the uh, the technical designation of it, but it's some kind of wash technique that gives it a more, not a painted style, but it, it's like the the colors are shaded in, in tones of of colored pencils and with different grays. It, it's it's kind of a, a unique look for this era where most covers were just, and and stories for that matter, were just colored with solid blocks of color. Uh, But that's it for this episode. Be sure to write in and let me know what you think of the show or this episode, or if there's a specific Superman and Batman story from throughout the years that you want me to cover. I will be back next episode with another issue of World's Finest Comics. Until then, I hope you have a great one, and I'll talk to you later. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to michael at greatcrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at greatcrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed so that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. 
Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. For more about Superman's creators, be sure to visit my blog, Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers, at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster, where I commemorate the lives, works, and legacies of Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. music that closed out this episode was E.T. by Katy Perry from her 2010 album Teenage Dream. If you like this song and want to purchase it, well, let's just file that under Poor Life Choices. But you can still head on over to TwoTrueFreaks.com and click the Amazon.com banner on their site. Buy the song or the album or pretty much anything else Amazon has to offer and Two True Freaks will get a little commission on every purchase. Not only will you get good music, or Katy Perry, but it won't cost you anything extra and help support one of the greatest podcast families out there.